Welcome to episode 87 of Walking Closer Podcast. Today, I got a sermon on my mind and it's time to let it out. So I want to do this right now uh, because, well, it's time. So no matter where you live, I mean, practically everywhere in the world, no matter where you are right now, you're probably facing some decisions, some choices that you really don't want to make. Because of COVID-19, we are being asked to do some things that we might not want to do, uh, especially if you live in the States right now. Many people are feeling like their personal liberties or rights are being violated because government officials are, you know, mandating certain things or just simply asking certain things of you. Tensions, tensions are high right now because people are tired. People are tired of social distancing, um, mask wearing, closures, tired of all the unrest, tired of all the tension, tired of everything, and yet we just, it's just like this vicious cycle. And here in Texas, uh, we were opening up, and now we are in reverse mode. Some some things are, are now being forced to close, some restrictions are being put back in place, and there's a call by some to implement even more restrictions or, or mandates. And it all just feels like a huge mess. And many people are fed up and just don't want to do this anymore, whatever this is, right? And and I get it. I really, really do. So I have a story for you that might be helpful. It's something found in Matthew's account of the life of Jesus in the New Testament. And admittedly, this uh, this section raises lots of questions. There are a few different approaches that we could take. And uh, so I think that this could be helpful. I hope that it can be. Of course, if you are, you know, consider yourself a follower of Jesus, if you consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, then uh, this text should be important to you. What Jesus says here, the things that you can learn from this, are important, and they should be important to you and should be of some interest to you. Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you do not consider yourself a disciple of Jesus, then maybe there's some things in this text that might just simply be helpful, okay, uh, to you when you consider what your next move needs to be or how uh, you might need to respond or maybe just just give you some things to think about okay um when you're in that position where you're being asked to do something but you feel like you really don't have to do it and you have to decide what are you going to do so maybe this maybe this section here will will be helpful to you as well okay so the text i'm looking at is in Matthew chapter 17 verses 24 through 27 now, let me set the stage before we jump right in. And uh, so Jesus has been spending some time in the mountains with two or three of the disciples, while the rest of the disciples are just kind of stayed in the areas below. And while Jesus is in the mountains, there's this thing that happens where Jesus changes and emits this bright white light. And we call it the, the transfiguration, right? This whole scene is called the Mount of Transfiguration. And, and Moses and uh, prophet Elijah show up and they all have this conversation and then these few disciples that he had with them they see all of this happen okay 
So then they make their way down this mountain, and when they get to the bottom, they come upon the disciples and some of the religious leaders they are arguing. And it turns out that the disciples had tried to cast out this demon from a man's son, but they were not able to do it. So Jesus comes along and basically fixes things, puts his disciples, but, but, but his disciples uh, are not, they're, they're puzzled, okay? They're, they don't understand how they're not able to do this because uh, before all of this, they were given the ability to do this, and evidently they did some of this stuff, and then all of a sudden they find themselves in a situation where it ain't working, okay? So the disciples are now puzzled as to why they were not able to cast out this demon, and so they ask Jesus some questions about all of this, and Jesus, you know, goes into teaching mode and gives them some explanations. It's very interesting to me, fascinating to me. I've covered this stuff before um, in, uh, in other places, but I won't go there now. Um, this kind of just helps you understand the backdrop of where we're coming from here. Um, then um, after this happens, okay, so Jesus cast the demon out of this man's son. The disciples are puzzled. Why couldn't we do this? Jesus, you know, the, the, he addresses it, but they're traveling all at the same time. And then after this, they're making their way back to Capernaum, and um, which I guess you might call it Jesus's home base. And somewhere along the way, the disciples started to argue with each other over who was the greatest among the disciples, okay? Now, that's interesting, because why would they be arguing about that? Well, lots of different factors might come into play in, in explaining that, but uh, at, at the very least, consider this, okay? If you were called by a rabbi, if you were selected, first of all, by a rabbi to be a disciple, that rabbi was saying that he has some confidence that you potentially might be able to do the things that he does. Okay, that was the, the, the typical traditional uh, way of doing things. The process of doing this is that you as a student who wanted to follow a specific rabbi, wanted to you know, follow in his footsteps, uh, you know, be supportive and even be a part of maybe uh, continuing his legacy on into the future. Um, you would seek out that rabbi and you would basically petition. Uh, for an opportunity to be a student, to be a disciple, to come, to listen, to learn, uh, to follow, to mimic, to obey, uh, basically be just like this rabbi. Now, uh, not all the students would necessarily end up being rabbis. Only the best of the best would actually become rabbi, okay? And the rest would just return to doing basically... Whatever it is, they, they were born to do, right? So you were born into a family. There were certain expectations based on who you were, uh, what you would be doing, and you would essentially, I guess, return back to that. Now, Jesus is a little bit different because he actually went out and sought his own disciples. And so I believe that all the disciples probably understanding the process of a disciple-rabbi relationship, the process that would take place, you know, wondering mainly, you know, who would make it? Maybe who would actually be, right, become the rabbi? No, maybe that's not what they were talking about. Maybe they had in mind this grandiose idea or picture of what the kingdom would be like, etc., etc. But regardless, there is some competition here, okay? There is some discussion about this. And there are a few other things that we can bring into play here, but um, understanding even just the backdrop of what a disciple-rabbi relationship, the process that took place 
and the expectations from that is uh, kind of helpful in understanding maybe some of the tension that would be there uh, and would actually ex- be expected, okay, to be there. So uh, they're arguing about who's, go- who's the greatest among all of the disciples, and evidently things got a bit tense because eventually Jesus questions them about it all. And then when you look at how they responded, and when you look at what Jesus tells them, it seems pretty obvious to me, at least, that things probably got a little heated. Okay, um, so that's where we're at. They're traveling, they've had these discussions, but now when we jump into the picture, into this narrative, is when I believe they first get back to Capernaum, okay? And before Jesus actually questions them about what their argument uh, was about or what their discussions were about, what they were talking about, which leads them to, you know, exposing this argument, okay? Um, So in between the time they get to Capernaum and the time that they get into this house, wherever Jesus is staying, and he questions them about this. That's where we're at. We're in this, and we're going to jump into this narrative, and I believe they have just gotten back to Capernaum, and we're picking up in verse 24 of Matthew 17. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma texts went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? My first question, though, is this. What to drachma? What is that? A drachma is an ancient Greek silver coin. And so we're really just talking about a monetary unit, like the euro or the dollar. Now, two drachma um, is a reference to how much the temple tax was. And there were coins that were worth two okay, drachma. So, just think of something costing, say, $10, right? We have a $10 bill. Or you could use any combination of coins or dollars to pay the $10 fee. Or just use a $10 bill, right? So, in the same way, they had a coin that was worth two drachma. Uh, could be like the difference between a quarter or a 50 cent piece. But here is the other thing. Okay, so we're talking about a monetary unit. But it's also involved in that is the actual how much the temple tax was. But here's the other thing. There was an official temple currency. Yeah, it, it was believed that the Tyrian shekel was the only coin that a Jew could give into the temple treasure. So along the way, money changes would be involved. Okay? Now, this was a tax that every Jewish mill was expected to pay and they were expected to pay it for temple maintenance and it had its origins deep in jewish history like literally we can go back to the time just after the exodus from egypt and in exodus 30 uh, we're told that there was a census was taken and all males 20 years and older were to give a half shekel of silver to support the tabernacle, which was what was used before the temple, a permanent structure was built. And this tax remained in place even after the temple was built, and the money uh, was collected from a census. And you'll find that in 2 Kings 12. Then the Babylonians come along and destroy Jerusalem and the temple. 
And then when they were allowed for some time to return and rebuild, according to Nehemiah 10, the people placed upon themselves the, quote, obligation to contribute yearly one-third of a shekel for the temple. And so here they felt this obligation to contribute to the rebuilding, right, and the maintaining of the temple. Now, this continued for some time and eventually evolved into the half-shekel tax that we see around the end of the Maccabean period, believing that this also led into the time of Jesus. Now, it's important to note that during the time of Jesus, while they were expected to pay the tax, it was not enforced. In other words, there were no legal penalties if you did not pay it. However, like with many things that aren't necessarily enforced, the obligation you feel, right, is enforcement enough. And the temple was quite successful at collecting this tax as well. Obviously, it uh, would be convenient to pay the temple tax when you might journey to Jerusalem for a Passover or other feasts. And remember, the Jews came from everywhere, and if they wanted to be seen as dedicated and loyal to the temple and its priesthood, they would pay this tax. Okay? Now, this is where the money changers would come into play. Since there was just one kind of coin accepted, you would need to exchange whatever common currency you had from wherever you came from, not just to pay the temple tax, but also to be able to do business right while you were in Jerusalem. Now, just think of all the money changers, like ATMs. They were convenient. There was a way to get the cash you needed uh, immediately, but they did have exchange fees, okay, like ATM fees. And I think you can see how it you know, been a profitable business to be a money exchanger. Now, all that being said, there was some controversy around having this tax. Not everyone approved. Some disapproved on moral or ethical grounds, while others just didn't want to pay it. And they would figure out ways to get around it, okay? And it's not always clear what side people fell on, but groups like the Sadducees and the Essenes and others disapproved of the tax. But overall, it does seem like most probably paid the tax, okay? So do you see the comparisons, the parallels to where we are in so many ways, right? There are things that you're being asked to do, things that are in some ways are being mandated, required, things that others... Um, you're just simply being asked to do and you feel obligated to do them and there are people who don't want to do them and trying to figure out ways to get around them. Um, but for the most part, it does seem like the temple was pretty successful at paying the tax. Now, in doing so, right, there were some trade-offs. Uh, if you pay the tax, well, <laughs> if you didn't have the actual temple currency, right, it cost you something, Okay. It cost you something, and uh, that was a profitable business for money exchanges. Now, what I find interesting with this context is that they go to Peter, and they ask Peter this question, okay? And it's just like I was saying earlier, like, there's no scenario that it's presented. There are no steps. You don't see... Um, the journey that led to this conversation, this narrative, um, you know, like 
how did this how did this come about? Um, but it's interesting that they go to Peter and they ask Peter this question. Why did they come to Peter? Why? Why is he always like first in the mix? Okay. Like in Matthew's account, especially, Peter's like the first disciple to be called by Jesus. Um, when Matthew gives us a list of the 12 apostles, Peter is the first named. It is Peter who tries to be like Jesus and walk on water. Peter is the one who confesses Jesus as the Messiah. And this is just in Matthew's account. Okay, Peter, it's Peter who, who Jesus says will be given the keys of the kingdom. Peter witnesses the transfiguration, and he is oftentimes like the spokesperson for the disciples. He has the most questions. Uh, Peter says things like, explain to us the parable, you know, and, and he asks questions like, how often are we to forgive? Uh, he, you know, Matthew 19, when some of the disciples, you know, um, had left Jesus, and Peter says, we have left everything and followed you, then what will we have? Right? Peter pulls Jesus aside to rebuke him, Matthew 16, and he, he is, Peter is prominent in events even leading up to the death of Jesus, right? Who forgets that? Matthew 26. The question is, what is the deal with Peter? Why is Peter so prominent? Well, I think it was because he was the oldest of the disciples. And as the oldest, he would have naturally been seen as a leader, even expected to be the spokesman. So we not only see Peter acting on perceived expectations, right? Because as, as because of his age, but people approaching him based on those expectations. Okay, uh, that's what I believe is going on here. The other thing is those who were over twenty were expected to pay the tax, and as you will see, he was at least twenty years old because he pays the temple tax. In fact, the temple tax is only paid for Jesus and Peter and none of the other guys. Why is that? Okay, it is my belief that Peter was the oldest. Um, and the other disciples were probably pretty young, okay, at least under 20. Eh, coincidence, maybe. Um, yeah, that's just my thoughts on it, putting some things together here. Nonetheless, they come to Peter, and they ask him the question. And Peter says, yes, he will pay the temple tax, or he does pay the temple tax. Now, the question is, did Peter misspeak? Did he say yes without thinking? Right? Isn't that what Peter's kind of known for? And by saying yes, did Peter give his word that Jesus would pay without even consulting Jesus or knowing what Jesus would do? Well, look at what happens next. And so Matthew 17, 25. When he came into the house, that's Peter, comes into the house, Jesus spoke to him first. So before Peter could bring it up, Jesus says something. And just what Jesus says, he says, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From the sons, from their sons, or from others? Now, some translate others as strangers. It's a, it's a word that deals with those who are not of one's own family. And so it's being very specific. It doesn't necessarily mean a stranger like someone that you don't know. It's talking about someone who is a part of your family and someone who isn't. Okay, there's the distinction there. It's just... The reality of someone who is a part of your family, as we would think of family today, and someone who is not. And so Jesus asked, do kings require their children to pay the taxes imposed on the population? Does the king tax his children or his people or his subjects? That's the question. 
And the answer is, of course, the children don't pay taxes, right? They collect the tribute from the people. It's how they acquire their wealth. It's where their power comes from. It's, it's how they are able to keep control of the resources long after their uh, their father is gone. Like right? they, They're able to control the resources that people need to survive, and it's how they're able to reorder the world to best suit them. And Peter knows how empires work. The king doesn't tax his children. He is trying to set them up for success, to establish themselves as potential rulers so the family can maintain their control for generations to come. And Peter understands this, and which is why Peter answers from others. And so in verse 26, Jesus said to him, Yes, then the sons are free or exempt. The Greek word translated free here has to do with one who is not a slave or a subject, uh, one who is exempt, not bound by obligation. And now based on Jesus' response, it's easy to quickly conclude that Jesus is referencing the fact that he is the son of God and the temple is his father's house. Therefore, he would have no need to pay the tax. And it is interesting that it is with Peter that he is having this conversation with, especially since it was Peter who confessed him to be the son of God. Now, this could be something that would reinforce that reality in, the, in Peter's mind. And if Jesus is who he is, then the principle, right, would fit. Now, quite honestly, this is where many, many of your commentators and books and, uh, stop. However, I think, I think there is more going on here. Okay? When you look at the controversy behind the temple tax, then at the same time, uh, Jesus is starting to share with his disciples what the relig- religious leaders are going to do to him. Okay, I think there is another layer to what's going on here. And I think Jesus is not talking about himself, but about Peter, the disciples, or maybe Jesus is not just talking about himself, okay, but about Peter, the disciples, and other Jews, fellow Jews. Now, regardless, the point is Jesus says, I don't have to do this. That's the point. However, he goes on, not to give offense. No, the word offense here is not just simply the idea of tripping someone. Okay, it's not the idea of causing someone just to stumble. And when we do that, uh, when that happens, the picture is presented, you know, they're able to get back up. That's not this picture. This is the idea of trapping someone. And when you trap someone, they're stuck, right? They're done with. They're not getting back up. Usually a trap means it's the end for them. That's not that, 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 that's what we're talking about here. However, not to give offense to them. Go to the sea and cast a hook and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. <laughs> now, now, when I look at this, I ask, why not just pay the tax from the money back? We know they had money. Jesus had people who helped him financially. Peter had a fishing business. We, we presume it was still operational. He had partners. He was successful. He had a wife and a mother-in-law and possibly other family members to take care of. Uh, he had means. Why did Jesus send him to fish? And did you know that this is the only time we have the example of someone fishing with a hook in the New Testament? Yeah. And then Peter, Peter catches a fish that had a shekel in its mouth. And a shekel was worth four drachma, which was enough to pay the tax 
the temple tax for two people, right? For Jesus and Peter. Jesus sends them not to pay not to pay the tax for anybody else, but them too. Now, one small note before we continue. Um, there's a certain species of tilapia, believe it or not, found in the south of in the, the Sea of Galilee. And um, in fact, this fish has been nicknamed St. Peter's fish because it's believed that this was may have been the fish that Peter caught. Um, and what's cool about them is that they actually hold the eggs in their mouths until they're hatched. And even afterwards, the babies can like swim back in their mouths when, you know, they're uncomfortable, there's some danger. Um, it's also believed that they prepare themselves to do this by collecting rocks. And some have even been found with bottle caps in their mouths. Um, however, others believe that Peter caught a different fish, um, and a fish that uh, eats snails and scavenges for food in the mud and Tilapia was essentially caught with nets, and uh, this other fish was caught with hooks, and so that's why some believe that it was this fish. But anyways, I find those things interesting, but we're running down rabbit holes now. So Jesus pays the tax for Peter and himself. Remember, this tax was originally a way to take care of the tabernacle and then the temple. It had a long history among the Jews, and it helped to support the most important place for them, right? Nothing wrong with that. Seems legit. And if you pay this tax, that showed, demonstrated that you were concerned, right, um, about the temple and about the priesthood and about its maintenance and about its continuity. Um, and it painted a picture of you being a good Jewish boy, a good Jewish man, right? You were dedicated to the temple. You were dedicated to your heritage. Now, uh, no, however here, notice the example that Jesus gives in, in comparison to that. He talks about collecting money, okay, from customs and tribute that make those in power wealthy, See, there's something a little bit different between how Jesus presents this than how this actually started out. Because when it started out, right, it's simply legit. It's about maintaining the tabernacle, maintaining the temple. They even impose it upon themselves, right? They feel obligated to do this, and it continued on. Um, but now, I find it interesting because... Jesus, in the example he presents here, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but bear with me. The example that Jesus gives in comparison, he talks about collecting money from customs and a tribute that make those in power wealthy. The temple tax wasn't about making anybody wealthy. Ah, yeah, but now, in the time of Jesus, remember who's in power. Remember the system, the structure that's in place. Sadducees, the Sanhedrin Council, Sadducees, Pharisees, the scribes, um, all the deception and the power-hungry leaders Jesus talks about over and over and over again. So he's talking about collecting money. Who's collecting this tax? Who has their hands in this money? Who has the hands in the treasury? The religious leaders. Money changers. And the temple aristocracy. Yeah. The same people Jesus had butted heads with, the same people he has warned his disciples about, the same people who is telling them will put him to death. These are the people in power who control things, and everyone knows it. Okay, And remember that there was a specific coin minted just for temple currency. Um, and remember what I mentioned earlier about the money changers? They made a killing Okay, in the process of this tax collection. And the temple treasury okay, was extremely wealthy 
And it was found to be that be so uh, before the temple was destroyed. And it seems that this temple tax, which had meaningful beginnings, had become just another way to make the powerful more powerful. And I think Jesus' response to Peter highlighted the corrupt system and its leadership. Think about this. By Peter getting the coin to pay the tax from the mouth of a fish, it didn't cost them anything. And I think it was symbolic of the fact that they, that is Jesus, his disciples, and other Jews, were not held in obligation or or subordinate to the temple authorities. Okay? Now, let's think about our current situation. And how things were before things became politicized, right? People seem to be more about doing what they thought needed to be done, okay? And then, you know, something we're learning about, information changes. The more data we get, the more information we get. Um, You know, people, I mean, when you're learning about something you never knew before, you think you know something, and then more information tells you otherwise. And then... Things really began to ramp up politically, and now the response to what's going on right now in the world, but specifically in our culture, um, in our society, is very, very political right now. And in our society, unlike some other societies, in our society, anytime you mention politics, politicians, it's never in a positive light. Like, we literally vote for people we don't trust. <laughs> we, we vote pe- for people we don't trust. Or even if we say, I feel a little bit more, com- like, right? We, I feel a little bit more confident in this person than, than this person. We choose the lesser of two evils. Like, politicians and politics and deception and uh, corruption, and you know, they, they go hand in hand. Even if we don't say it, we're thinking it, we feel it. Like, that is, it's a given. Like, it, it's crazy. This is, this is nuts. But that's, that's where we are, okay? Notice the parallels in our text and in where, where we are. Uh, some things just never change. So, I think Jesus' response to Peter highlighted the corrupt system and its leadership, okay, and how they are responding in this moment to what they need to do right here, to something to something like paying this temple tax, okay? In the grand scheme of things, paying this temple tax was 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 nothing. Could they may have been a could they have made a big deal about it? Yes. Could they have fought it? Yes, and people did. Okay. They weren't obligated to do it. Um so Jesus highlights the corruption and the freedom that they all had as children of God. However, <laughs> Jesus pays the tax, man. He pays the tax. Why? Like, in our society, we would have a hard time understanding why would do something like this. Well, I say that I'm painting with a broad brush. I think that some people, many people, I believe, might have a hard time seeing why. Why would you do something that you didn't have to do and it's something you don't like? It's maybe even something you disagree with. Why? 
Because he always did the next right thing. Sure, they were not obligated, but the tax meant something to people, and it meant something to their society. And by paying it, he avoids unnecessary negative attention. And what, what we've already seen and, and will continue to see is that, especially in the gospel accounts up to this point, Jesus is beginning to move around, and, 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 and he's more secretive. Um, and he's not trying to draw more attention to himself. And, but this is, this is a lesson in humility, though. Um, he did not have to pay, but he did it anyway for a greater cause. And, and I, I wonder what was going through Peter's mind as he went to the shore and cast that hook and waited for that fish. Then the anticipation as he brought it out of the water and found the coin in the fish's mouth, right? Maybe contemplating what Jesus just told him and what it meant and turning around and paying the tax, even though he didn't have to. The reality that there was something more important in that moment than I don't have to do this. And this is where we are right now. In so many ways, with so many things. When it comes to where we go and what we can do and how we can do it. So many things have, have been turned upside down, right? So many things, so many things just don't seem right to so many people. And people are fed up with lots of stuff, right? Some things, and there are some things that we should be fed up with. No question about it. Some things just are not right. Some things are not good, okay? And those, those things are obvious. But the problem is we can get fed up with everything, right? Even the little things can become explosive things and it becomes difficult to, to determine what's worth fighting for and making a fuss over and what we quite honestly need to humble ourselves too and do the thing we really don't have to do. And some of those things, yeah, really won't cost us anything. Sure, we may have to go grab the fishing pole and walk to the bank and catch a fish. Sure, we might need to put on a mask or wait patiently to enter a store, socially distancing gatherings, or just, you know, we might have to fill in the blank. Whatever it is that you are experiencing right now. And, I, and again, I agree. Some of those things are things that should be made. Not necessarily, I don't believe in any things that I've mentioned so far are worth some of the effort and the fight that people are putting up, you know, <laughs> opposing it. Um, it's just, I just don't, I, for me, it's, it seems very little. I think there are other things that are definitely way, way more important and worth being upset over. Um, but regardless, I mean, it's how people feel. It's where they are. And they have their reasons. And we might feel like no one can make me do these things, or I don't have to do these things, whatever those things might be. And I just mentioned those because those are the most obvious. Um, however, sometimes we just do the next right thing. We do the thing we don't have to do. And we don't do it for ourselves. We do it for others. So Jesus and Peter, or really no one technically had to pay the temple tax. But Jesus did it. Not because of himself, but because of others. In fact, how many things did Jesus do? Not for himself but for others. So 
maybe, if we are faced with the decision to do something and we really don't want to do it and we feel like no one can really make us do it, before we decide what we're going to do, it might be helpful to consider this account that Matthew shares where Jesus does something and even teaches one of his disciples the necessity, right? One of the disciples who is possibly the oldest would be expected to be the most mature. Jesus teaches him this lesson, the necessity of sometimes doing something that you feel you don't have to do.